Podcasting from Phoenix, Arizona, the home of year-round flip-flops, the nation's largest city park, and Cactus League spring training. This is The Saver and the Spender, a weekly podcast about budgeting and money habits from both perspectives. And now, here are your hosts, The Saver and financial coach, Kelsa Dickey, and her husband, The Spender, Michael Dickey. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Saver and the Spender. Uh, If you're watching live on Facebook, you're actually just seeing The Spender. Um... Kelsa is actually on an emergency phone call with a client, so it's going to be uh, me, myself, and I, but luckily we are joined by uh, my friend and um, uh, long time, I guess I've tortured her for a long time, uh, <laughs> physically and emotionally, but uh, Jill Schiffelbein is here with us, and she is the dynamic communicator. So we're going to be talking today about communication skills and, and pretty much every which way you can talk about being a good communicator, whether it's at work or during a presentation or public speaking or social media wise and, and everything in between. So I'm going to bring up Jill here. Hi, Jill. Hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> and, and yes, you have tortured me physically, mentally, emotionally. <laughs> you just have put me through the ringer. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but that's why we're here, right? So, um, let's. We should contextualize that, though. When I had multiple knee surgeries, Michael here was my physical therapist. <laughs> yes, and I wasn't going to bring that up unless you wanted to talk about it. But yeah, so um, yeah, and I, if there's anybody that's been a patient of mine that has worked harder uh, and gotten pushed through more, it's been Jill. So she has the uh, uh, mental and intestinal and emotional fortitude to get through some pretty painful stuff. So. Um, so actually, I have, I have a little, I wrote up a little bio um, for you because uh, Jill has been, um, she has kind of an interesting background and a lot of different, she's done a lot of different things, I'll put it that way, and very, I think, very cool things. So uh, Jill is a former professor of business communication. She's a textbook author. She has two books on her own, right? The Impromptu Guru and Dynamic Communication. Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, and dynamic communication was just released a couple weeks ago. And is, uh, as far as last I saw a couple days ago, was the number one new release in the communication skills section of Amazon. It was. So that's awesome. Um, she uh, has been a professional athlete media coach, contributed to Entrepreneur Magazine, uh, and a communication coach and speaker. What, am I, what else am I leaving out there? What else? Tell, tell us about you. Animal lover, Animal, New right. York City dweller, yeah. lover of whiskey cocktails. Oh, I mean, man. the important things in that's life. That's right. <laughs> oh, good old fashioned. Yes. <laughs> um, so t- tell everybody specifically, um, communication wise, what your forte is. You know, when it comes to communication, my strength is a true understanding of two different things. Number one is how to communicate complex processes and procedures, perhaps systems, technology, whatever it may be to anybody in a way that they can understand and use it. I'm a very systems thinker, very procedural, very process oriented and getting that translated so that anyone can, you know, hear a message in a way that applies to them and actually execute on that's a strength. And the other is, A lot of people in the communication field, they will focus on a specific aspect like team building, for example, or maybe managerial communication or sales communication. But what's important to know and what I love talking about is the most successful communication, the most dynamic communication, if you will, 
it involves three audiences. And whenever you send a message as a business or an entrepreneur, you're really sending it to three audiences. And one is internal to your company. One is your consumers. And then the third, the other is the general public. So you have messages going out across multiple channels at multiple times. But so often I find that businesses are just focusing on one, not realizing how it impacts the others. Interesting. So as far as those three audiences go, which is the one that's left out the most? Or has the biggest Left issues. out the most is um, quite often consumers um, or internal, depending on if it's sales communication, the consumer is not left out. Obviously, the internal is. But in a lot of communication, it's all we're all excited internally. We're doing this. They've done a good job motivating in a team. But you fail to communicate what's going to happen to your customers to get buy-in. So when you have a new product launch, for example, if you haven't gotten that buy-in from your consumers, it's going to be an uphill battle. Hmm, interesting. So what what are some things that save uh, audience is because I think a lot of our um, the people that we're talking to right now are small business owners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so maybe internally, they don't have that many people to communicate with. But if, if the audience that they need to work on the most or is their their target market, what are some some mistakes that they make and and um, treatments for that? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge one thing first, you know, they may not have internal audiences in terms of hired employees, but the community that you build up around you, your network, your peers, those people, those are your internal Mm. audiences when you're an entrepreneur, especially if you're like a solopreneur, a micro entrepreneur, right? Something, someone with maybe three, five at most employees, because it's very different when you start to have employees, especially when you have more than a couple, your communication strategy changes in many ways, but for me, even for example, um, this book that just came out, it wouldn't have been able to hit the number one new release. I actually got a second category too in business mentoring and coaching, which was oh, wow. awesome, right? I, who knew? So cool. But I, but all those things, it gets exciting and it's fun, but there's no possible way I could have, che- have achieved that on my own if I didn't have a solid internal strategy. And for me, my internal communication strategy as a solopreneur is all of my vendors, all of my contractors, but then also all of my peers, all of my colleagues, people I've networked with. I see those as my employees in a way, but better yet, my ambassadors, right? We Mm -hmm. have communities of ambassadors that help spread the word. And a lot of companies and entrepreneurs mistake that an ambassador has to be someone that actually bought from you. And that's not the case at all. It can be someone who just really likes your style and supports you. So from the very beginning with the book project, I was so transparent about what I was doing and anyone who wanted to follow that journey could, whether or not they bought the book, it didn't matter to me. It was just about being open. So not being open and sharing that journey, I think is one of the mistakes people make immediately. Hmm. As far as those, um, those other internal communications for the solopreneurs, if you're trying to make connections so like for us, we, we look for a couple key um, uh, power partners, I guess. Is, would you call an ambassador a power partner? Is that interchangeable? Sure. That I mean, it, it could be in many different ways. Mm-hmm. More, normally a power partner, uh, a referral partner is more strategic yeah. in nature. Yeah. So for example, I have people who have read my articles on Entrepreneur and follow me on Twitter, message me on Facebook, mm-hmm. share everything I do. They may never buy from me and they may never be a referral source, but they're great as an ambassador of my writing, for example. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is important to for those type of people, say your ambassador, let's talk about ambassadors first. Um, 
how can you get them get more ambassadors and get them on your side? There's two ways to look at it. So think of, you know, customers that you've had, your, you know, current and former clients, obviously be taking care of them because it's much easier to retain someone than it is to recruit um, a new client, a new consumer. But the strategy for that would be even a little different than just building up a community around you. One of the things that I feel has been really instrumental in my success, even though I cannot directly put a dollar amount on it has been my ability to meet people and then be a connector of those people to other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, genuinely getting to go out, getting to know what people like, getting to know what they do. And like, for example, I've known you and Kelsa now for, I don't know, three, four, gosh, four years. Wow. Wow. It's actually been a while. That's cool. You've been torturing me a long time. (laughs) I still have nightmares, but I know what you guys do. And so when I hear of someone in Arizona who needs that type of thing, I can give you that really, you know, that golden halo, that high five, that whatever it is, that extra push. And it's not a formal referral. It's just, Hey, you should check out what they're doing Mm -hmm. because they're doing some cool stuff. And that's really where when you're open and transparent and you guys do a good job of this, you are very like, we're new, newer now. It's been over a year, but you know, you're newer parents. You're following mm-hmm. this journey. You transitioned from full-time physical therapist to now awesome super dad, but now co-business partner, right? right? So you guys have a business together and sharing that journey along the way, like you guys have done. I imagine a lot of people have come through the word work and said, that's so cool. Or I want to learn more. Well, those people, when you communicate your story openly, including the negative stuff, you know, including the oops, that did not work so well. It's the best way to build that up. But what so many people often do, and I think, and this is a lesson for marketing, whether you're trying to build up your ambassadors, your client base, whatever, people spend a lot of time and often money crafting these amazing social media strategies, Mm -hmm. but then they do a poor job on actually engaging after the fact. So maybe someone just puts a thumb up and likes, but my goodness, if you're paying for an advertisement, especially if you put a lot into a campaign, every single person who liked, I'm going to be sending them a private message. It may be cut and paste and I adapt one sentence, but I'm going to find a way to engage with them more, especially if they didn't comment. If I post an article, for example, and anyone can do this and you get maybe, you know, 25, 50, a hundred likes on it, but maybe only 10 comments will reach out to all the people who just liked it and say, Hey, thanks for the support of this article. Would love to know what your favorite piece was mm-hmm. just to start engaging in that conversation. So it goes beyond, you know, a simple thumbs up. Right. Interesting. That makes so much sense because that's something that I definitely don't do because I do a lot of the social media and, um, I think I, I, and probably, like you said, one of the mistakes is we go for quantity, not quality mm-hmm. for those type of things. And and what is in the most important thing is making connections uh, and not just getting that like that um, people probably forget about anyways. And so you make those connections. So uh, social media wise, what are some other um, uh, remedies for the, that type of audience? You know, I always, I'm a big believer in thanking everyone. That's just the attitude of gratitude type thing. But I am a big believer in, and I try to do it as much as possible. And when, um, for example, when I have a new article out on entrepreneur.com, sometimes there's literally hundreds or more of tweets and shares, and I don't always hit reply to all of them. I try some days, but, you know, I'll get the first part out of it. And maybe later in the day when I'm on the subway or something, I'm in New York City. So yes, there's subways here, you know, (laughs) I'll be able to respond back. But 
I try to be very intentional about just thanking people for sharing, Mm. whether it's publicly like Twitter is or privately in a Facebook or a LinkedIn message. Mm -hmm. You want to do that. And the opportunities that have come to me from doing that simple thing are amazing. I thanked someone for sharing a tweet uh, who wrote back that same day, thanks for having great content. I like to share good content. When I decided to do a thunderclap campaign, which is a whole other thing, but it's a massive social media sharing tool, uh, I reached out to all these people who had responded to my thank you tweet on Twitter and ended up amassing about a 450,000 additional impression reach than I would have had just by simply sending messages. And two of those people with audiences bigger than mine, I'm talking like 50, 60,000 people on their lists, asked me to be on their podcast. Literally in a matter of minutes, just from actually taking time to say thank you and engaging on social media. It does happen. That is huge. Wow, Mm -hmm. that's a great tip. Um, That is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kind of blown like, like, that's a lot of impressions. Um, And how do you you handle that? That's crazy. Uh, That's great. So what are some other mistakes Let's talk about mistakes because I think that's where – because people identify with those. You know, you can talk about tips. You can talk about mistakes. But other mistakes that that people make uh, specifically with stuff like this, like Facebook Live video. Uh, Ego numbers. It's a huge mistake. And so, for example, I mean – I like seeing the number of viewers go up. Who doesn't on their video? But in reality, Facebook counts a video view after three seconds. So Uh. the number of views you have is not indicative of people who watched it and retained it throughout. YouTube, for example, it has to be 30 seconds before you get that counted. So there's a very big difference. And I have a lot of people telling me, well, I get so many more views on Facebook than I do on YouTube. Yeah, how many times have you been scrolling through on mobile and you let it sit for a couple seconds? Well, if it hits three, that has counted as a view on a video. Mm. So those are all ego numbers. And ego numbers for me, well, I love data and statistics. They're so sexy. I love looking (laughs) at them. They're just, they don't do anything. What I'd rather know is how many people commented, how many people engaged, how many people shared. Sharing is a huge indicator. Mm. Because if you think about it on any social media, and I challenge people to look at it this way, you look at all your numbers, look at your views or whatever, know that view is a complete ego number. Thumbs up, likes, or the hearts, or any type of reaction is a nice number. But when you can actually look at comments, you have engagement. And when you have shares, you are on money. And if you are not thanking people who share your content, because in social media, you can see who shares it, Mm -hmm. then you're really making a big mistake. Mm -hmm. Because those people thought your content was good enough that they are putting it on their timeline, prioritizing it over anything that they have posted of themselves. And if you really think about that, that's powerful. But so many people don't contextualize it that way. And they're like, oh, look, I got 2,000 views today or I got 100,000 views today, whatever it is. And don't mistake ego numbers for actual results on your social media. Right. And what's the best way to, to thank somebody like that? I know you said you can do public, publicly or privately, but say it's a Facebook and it's a mm-hmm. Facebook share of, of your content. What do you recommend? You can do a couple of things. Um, Number one, the easiest thing to do and kind of the lowest bar is just a comment in the thread of that video of that piece of content. Like, Michael Dickey, thank you so much for sharing this piece. You're awesome. Mm. You know, because then people see your name in the comment and it'll make you feel darn good because you were tagged. I mean, for crying out loud, tag people's names. That's the simplest thing. Yeah. 
if someone shares, and this is one of those cool things, I just, uh, one of my uh, colleagues, people I know in New York City, he's this like uh, amazing New York Times bestselling author, blah, 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 these cool things. And I'm like, I bow down to you. <laughs> he, his recent piece at Forbes, uh, Bernie Sanders shared it. Whoa. Right? <laughs> so talk about some power. <laughs> like Again, I bow to your greatness. That's amazing. But what he did was he actually took a screenshot of Bernie's share of the article and then reposted that tagging Bernie's account in it. Even though they're not friends, you can tag a business account too mm-hmm. and said, how amazing. Thank you so much, Bernie Sanders, for sharing uh, my latest article on. And then, you know, so people are seeing the photo, which we know in social media, photos get more views than just text. Mm -hmm. So that's very important. Videos even more so in terms of how often Facebook puts it on there because something to get to know, and this is side tangent, but any site that relies on advertising to make money, they will prioritize anything that keeps viewers on their site longer because the longer you're on their site, the more ads they can show. So if your videos are not only getting views but are keeping people on longer, Facebook, the algorithm, same with YouTube, will prioritize how it suggests things for you to watch. So really important to know that too. But yeah, if you have a high-profile person, even someone in your friends list who has a massive amount of followers – tag them and thank them, take a screenshot, man, it makes my day when Jill Schiffelbein retweets my stuff or whatever it is. Simple things like that can go a long way. Yeah. Gotcha. I know we were just on, uh, we had, uh, some wellpreneur coaches on our podcast mm-hmm. two weeks ago and then Kelsa was on one of them, um, last week. Sorry, my lights fell on here. And, uh, they, just the amount of, 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 our Facebook likes likes that have gone up in the past couple of weeks. So just, and, and we, and, and I should get back into uh, thanking those people and that kind of stuff, but just, just being able to share, uh, with people with higher, um, I, you know, that was the word caliber of followers and number of followers is definitely a big help. For yeah. Me. And I, I think it's also, it's being authentic and who you're collaborating with in that way too. Right. Mm-hmm. Because there are people who are out there for just a numbers game, the ego mm-hmm. numbers. And then, Oh, I got how many impressions, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. For me, if, if my content is not a good fit for your audience, I don't want you to share it because then it does two things. Number one, it's not doing anything for me, but number two, it's actually diluting your brand. If you're sharing something that's not authentic to what you're doing. So, you know, fiscal fitness, for example, you could share any business related topic in a very natural way. Mm-hmm. So just like you need to be fiscally fit, you also need to be communicatively, you know, uh, cardio communication. We could do some alliteration right, you know, right, in right. some way there. Right. But you can easily and naturally share that because if people are worried about their finances, especially if the audience is made up of entrepreneurs, they're going to want to know other quality content. And when they know and trust you, and this is communication for buy-in in general, when someone knows and trusts you, whether you're their manager, a leader, someone they follow, you giving them a connection to someone else shortcuts their time to finding resources, which makes you even more valuable to them. Right. Let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey over the past couple of years. Because uh, so four or five years ago, you were in Arizona with me, right? Mm-hmm. And then I remember you saying, Mike, I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to give it a shot. And um, that is probably the biggest jump I think anybody makes is, right, is I'm going to move to New York City or I'm going to move to L.A., um, so talk about, because we do, like I said, we do have a lot of solopreneur, entrepreneur people that, that listen and follow us. So t- t- tell us your journey. 
You know, what I think is really interesting, uh, you know, I'm selfish, I'm biased. Of course, my journey is fantastic. But what, what I find most interesting about it is I, I think whatever everyone's life situation is different, right? I'm a single person. I don't have kids. I don't have a significant other. I mean, I have a great cat. I'm surprised she hasn't popped up in here by now, <laughs> you know, but, you know, that's my life situation. So I was a little more fluid, if you will, than mm-hmm. a lot of other people might be able to be. But as with this decision to move or any decision you make in your life, you have the ability to do it. You just have to consciously choose to do it. For me, it was, I had been in business uh, since June, 2011. It was when I cut the full-time cord and stopped taking that paycheck and, you know, did great in Arizona. It was just fine in Arizona, a, a lovely place to live for many reasons, but for where I wanted my business to grow and the type of work I wanted to do, it wasn't ideal for me. Uh, there weren't as many opportunities. There weren't as many, you know, especially media outlets. I do a lot of stuff with that. So in New York, obviously it's a huge uh, center and I just wasn't able to surround myself with the people I needed to grow me. And that's not saying the people there were bad at all, but what I needed to grow myself wasn't there. And when I realized I can stay in this life, which is very nice, or I can try something different. I literally made the decision, uh, had another surgery to make sure some health things were okay. And when I woke up and the doctor said all was clear, as soon as I woke up the second time on my parents' couch on my phone, I booked a ticket to New York and two months later I lived here. Wow! And it was a crazy thing, but I was also willing to go for broke. And I Mm. think that's I don't have some delusions of grandeur that I was going to move here and become a millionaire. I was going to start a new business brand and make hundreds of thousands of dollars right off the bat. And I think entrepreneurs of all types get sold crap bill of of goods all the time from all these people who are like, yeah, here's how I bring in six figures a month. Well, yeah, you can bring in six figures a month because you've been working at this for years, have built up a massive following, and therefore you can bring in that type of money. Just for someone starting or who's been in business a couple years on their own and hasn't really done those things, they can't replicate that. So for me, it's become what do I need to surround myself with and finding the right people and the right energy is, you know, woo as that may sound, it's cities have energy, places have energy. For me, you know, I wasn't married. I didn't have a kid and I was surrounded by families all the time, which is nice and lovely and wonderful people, but it wasn't driving me to push outside of a comfort zone. So number one, putting yourself outside of the comfort zone, nothing good ever happens in terms of substantial change while you're in it. You'll have a nice, comfortable time, no doubt. But if you want change, you got to go outside of it. The second thing I did was I took a realistic picture of my finances and New York is it's just the most expensive thing I've ever even I imagined. Imagine. I mean, you move from like a beautiful house with a mortgage of $1,200 a month to 400 square feet at $4,000 oh a month. It's just insane. And Ugh. everything is more expensive. It's just, it's so amazing. But for me, I wanted to live in the city and I wanted that experience. And so I said, okay, here's my bank accounts. Here's my savings. And then I looked at, here's my retirement I know that I can always go back to teaching full-time somewhere. That's not going to be like, I can always at least pay the bills as an adjunct worst case scenario. So I have a fallback, but what can I do? How can I live my life? And how can I look at my finances responsibly? At least what I view it as responsibly. My, my mom and dad didn't so much agree with my view of responsible in this case, but 
I took it. I divided my retirement account by 12. And I said, the absolute worst case scenario is I go through about $20,000 of savings that I had. And then I go through my retirement account and I've had the most amazing year of my life experiencing New York and figuring things out. And that is the worst, worst case scenario. That's assuming I don't bring in a cent, right? Mm -hmm. Well, two and a half years later, that retirement account has only grown, you know, the savings. Now those did go away. Not going to lie there, (laughs) but the retirement account, you know, it just keeps growing and growing. And that's, you have to be willing to risk something for what you want to build. And for me, it was a real hard understanding of what is smart business debt or what is smart business spending when it came to my savings and an investment in me versus what was frivolous. And that really helped. That's great. I, I kind of went through the same experience when I left the physical therapy sports medicine mm-hmm. world. Um, we were at a point where I was fairly unhappy with where I was. Um, and, and as a new job, which I don't even know if we had even talked about this, but anyways, I left where I was comfortable and where I was working Mm -hmm. with you, new job, um, and totally completely not what they promised. And I was completely unhappy. So I said, you know what we need to, what's the change that I can make? I'm going to be a stay at home dad for a while. I'm going to help Kelsa with the back side of stuff, um, and see how it goes. I can always get a job somewhere else or go back to where I was previously. Um, you know, and, uh, and we, Kelsa was doing so much better and, and I could have been a stay-at-home dad forever, but I was getting bored and I knew I was going to be bored. So there's a point where you can say, you, you take a look at our finances like you did and say, this is where we're at. This is what we need. And let's just try it for, and, and, and budget out how much, how much are you willing to let go as an investment in yourself, if you want to call it that, and and go from there? So I think that's super important, and I wish Kelsey was here because she could talk about the numbers, but uh, – you know, tell it's, her I it's, brought up finance. Yes, stuff in this yes. Well, we're going to talk about more finances, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I love you. <laughs> uh, but no, that's that's. A, I think it's important for people to know that, you know, to, like you said, change comes from outside of your comfort zone, and whether that is leaving a job to something that is more fulfilling, but maybe less. Less uh, financially fulfilling, I guess, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Try try that. Um, but you, there's also other factors to take into account. So, are there anything? Is there anything else that you took into account, financially or mentally or emotionally? Or yeah, so many, so many things in terms of really realizing my own self worth. Uh, if you want to go really deep, and it was the point at which I finally understood what confidence meant. Hmm. And I think most people who know me you or you've seen me speak, you've seen me on videos, you would probably never think, wow, she deals with a lot of insecurity for herself. That's not, I hope, I don't think that's what most people think, but we all have insecurities. Sure. Every single one of us. And my realization, when I realized I was okay putting down five figures to invest, to spend a single day with the top person in their game where I want to be. And I thought, you know what? No, I, I, this is a rare opportunity. It was an auction for charity. It was never going to come up at that low of a price Mm. again, even though that was more money than I'd ever spent on any business investment, (laughs) it would never have happened again. Uh, it's this, it's that it's 
do I believe in myself in this business that I'm building? And if I do, why am I not willing to spend on myself and invest in myself? And that was a key turning point. And I think for me, a lot of entrepreneurs don't ever reach that point. It's I will invest in the business, but especially if it's just you or you and a couple people, you are your business. So when mm-hmm. are you also going to invest in yourself? Yes. I mean, for me, this is after being here now two and a half years at about, I don't know what, uh, 27 months in, I finally said, this is ridiculous. I need a monthly massage and I'm going to invest in myself and do it. And that doesn't sound like much, but it's a huge luxury, a huge luxury to do that. And to actually say, no, I'm going to purposefully at the end, I travel about 50% of the time. I'm on a lot of planes. I need that for myself to be healthy and happy. So invest in that. And I don't look at it as a business investment per se, but I know I need to take care of myself in that way. The same with exercise, eating right. I mean, I'm, I live in New York for crying out loud. I can eat a different thing every day and never get bored. And some days I do, and it's not that great for me, but (laughs) you know, I, you know, you have to be conscious of those things. But for me, when you invest in your own learning opportunities and are actually going to do something with them. I know people who go to conference after conference and pay so much money and never do anything with it. Mm -hmm. Invest in one smart learning activity for yourself every year without fail and promise to do something with it. And that for me, my first year was just moving here was that activity. And I said, my first year, my sole goal is to build up a community of supporters, my own ambassadors as, you know, tying it back in earlier, because I know without them, I will never last in a city like this. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I started, but you got to be willing to invest in yourself. Yeah. It's interesting how people don't a lot of people don't do that. They don't invest in themselves. And they and you look at their finances and they they have a, a really expensive car. They they buy the most expensive cable package. They have all this they spend a lot of money on a lot of stuff, but they don't invest in themselves with like you said, massages or the right type of coaches for themselves mm-hmm. personally or professionally or health stuff. And so it is very important to be able to inv- to, to figure out what you need personally and invest in yourself because you're going to get returns on that stuff. You're not going to get a return on an investment in a nice car, you know, or those, I guess you'd call them frivolous spending that is, (laughs) that is more ego or fun or pleasure seeking rather than investing in yourself. So that is a good, great, great point. It is. And I think, you know, when it comes to business right now, for me, you know, my next challenge is, When I think of spending, I'm launching, uh, it'll come out in May, brand new online membership community, right? Mm -hmm. At a lower price point so that people who genuinely want to learn can get in and do this, especially, you know, solopreneurs just starting out. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm working on a series with Entrepreneur Magazine to help, you know, build this whole community up. It's really exciting stuff. But when I look at, okay, how am I getting people in this community? It's, you know, a $49 a month price point. And this is just, you know, the numbers game. And I think, this is where I've held myself back in business. I say, okay, it's such a low price point. I know statistically that attrition comes after about three months. So Mm -hmm. each person is probably worth $150. Well, what's the cost of acquisition? Well, let's just say the cost of acquisition is $100 versus of advertisements, time process, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Well, I would look at, oh my gosh, $100 to get someone for a $50 a month product. Like, eh, I don't know if that's so smart. Whereas if I look at it, okay, if I put down a grand, that means I'm going to profit $500. Mm-hmm. 
or sure. uh, 300, what I didn't do the math right in my head, but you, you get yes, the point yes, right yes. now. Is, you know, if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm going to make 150 and I put down a hundred, I profit $50. If I do that 10 times there, it's 500. Yeah. $500. <laughs> I'm losing my mind with math right now. Wow. I feel like a moron. Don't show Kelsey right. this part. Yeah, well, now I know she's going to look at it, but it's, uh, so it's really then looking at, okay, do I need to take a loan? If I know through testing and knowing my audience that this is going to work, then it's worth taking a loan for five or $10,000 to put into this. Mm-hmm. But before I'd be like, oh my gosh, no, I can't take a loan, not a business loan, but right. figuring out what's smart debt for your business mm-hmm. versus what's frivolous debt. For me, that's smart debt instead of, you know, some tchotchkes or things that you can hand out to clients and people that's frivolous debt and really looking at whatever your business structure is and knowing, okay, if I'm going to throw a hundred dollars in Facebook advertising and expect to have wild returns, then you're probably a little crazy because that's not going to give you enough time to test things out. But I know for a fact in the $200 that I spent, uh, you know, on one thing, Facebook advertising campaign in the fall it brought me a $600 return. Hmm. So without question, worth it. Now, if I can figure out the secret sauce to replicate that all the time, you know, I'll, I'll be flying in to have these interviews in person exactly. everywhere, <laughs> everywhere on your own private jet <laughs> on the beach in a private yes. house, but it's, you need to figure that out. And that's been one of the biggest things, especially being raised in a very financially conservative household mm-hmm. is that I need to know that it's okay to invest smart in the business and smart in me, but you got to know where to draw that line. Exactly. Yes. And that's something that we've been doing this past, since January, I think we started a new, uh, very similar program where it's group coaching to, because there's a point when you get to a certain level in your business where you have zero time left. Mm-hmm. Right, you don't have any more time to schedule clients um, and meet with people in person, so you have to leverage yourself. So that's that's something that to consider if if you are a solopreneur trying to uh, figure out a group coaching option on top of one on one client coaching is it's it's you're leveraging yourself. So you're spending if you do a group coaching session, uh, say twice a week, that's uh, two to three hours a week that you're spending, and and you have to look at the how many clients you have in group coaching how much you're bringing in per month and you do all the work and you should be making more money per hour mm-hmm. compared to your hourly rates or at least equal to, to leverage yeah, your I, time. Group coaching is yeah. one of the smartest strategies you can do as mm-hmm. long as you're smart about, you know, how you communicate to them and then allowing them to communicate with each other in a community yes. format too and giving it more value than they could get as a one-on-one client. Yeah. That's the magic. Yes. And it really is so much more valuable. I, if you... It's hard for us. The, the problem we've come across is someone that's coming from one-on-one coaching that likes that one-on-one attention that you just unfortunately can't get. It's not one-on-one. It's not private. So some people are afraid of that, uh, putting themselves out there. But you find the right person that is it's appropriate for them to be able to put themselves out there, and they appreciate that type of community because mm-hmm. it's great to see that five other people have the same exact question or problem. And it adds that so much more value for the overall program compared to the one-on-one coaching. So it's definitely valuable for a lot more people than I think people realize. It is. And it's all about, it's just like anything. It's about how you communicate it. How do you communicate the value, right? Mm -hmm. And then how do you communicate the structure and 
foster the communication within the community. Cause so many, I've seen group coaching programs that, you know, they may have planned out the sessions well, but they haven't planned out the in-between well. And mm. if you really want people to feel involved and invested, there needs to be continual communication throughout. And that's where the best group coaches, I mean, they just thrive on this stuff. I know people who have made half million, million dollar businesses on group coaching models and it can happen and it works mm-hmm. if you do all the parts. Right. Do the right stuff. I want to switch gears really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was reading through some, I don't even know where I read it about you, but would you tell us about uh, you looking at terrorist communications? Because that sounds <laughs> yeah. pretty badass. You know, it was 2006. I was in graduate school at the time. And there's a professor by the name of Dr. Stephen Corman. And him and a partner had created this software, like geeky, awesome software. And I was kind of bored in grad school. So I'm like, hey, Dr. Corman, can I play with your software? Can I use it to conduct a research study? He's like, okay, you're a weird kid. But, you know, sure, go on. (laughs) Actually, I love him. He's fantastic. Super smart. But he actually, after 9-11, used this software to do a text-based resonance analysis, yes, geek geek out here, of the media post 9-11. Well, the military caught on to that. And actually contacted him about, you know, the uses of the software. And since I had been working with him already, playing with the software, very, very long back and forth story short, it came that uh, he received an ask uh, from a counterterrorism point at West Point. Hey, we have these documents from a terrorist camp raid that we just did. Uh, We'll get them translated for you. Can you guys decipher them? We need communication messaging. We need to understand it better. And he said, yeah, sure. And then what any smart professor does, hands it to the grad student <laughs> right. that, you know, wants to do it. And he's like, hey, Jill, you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? And boom, hundreds of pages of documents put in front of me. And so I put it in the software and then I literally hand coded through all the pages and started analyzing it. And what I learned was when you can start to reverse engineer any process, you really have an understanding of it. So from a thematic level and then from an information flow level, we were able to decipher how information, how communication was happening inside and outside uh, the terrorist camps. And it resulted, it was my first publication, a white paper that got picked up, ended up being a book chapter back in 2006. And it's one of those experiences that you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is really my life. But it was, and I learned an immense amount uh, of information, not only about counterterrorism strategy, but really how information flow within a system can change the trajectory of any organization. Wow. Personally, going through all those documents, what, what did you, what were your feelings like? You know, it's interesting, um, you know, smart. I'm like, dang, this is meticulous. This is well-organized. This is well-planned. And the one realization that hit me throughout all of it is, you know, terrorism is really, in, in this case, back then, you could argue it's different now. We won't really go into that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, it was terrorism is a family business. And if one family member dies, the other family members come in and pick up the slack. And from their communication strategy, it was amazing how they made sure the information going out matched the information going in, in as much as possible. I mean, even down to controlled media outlets and stuff like that, as we well know now. Uh, And it was the things that they did um, to legitimate, to propagate, to intimidate 
inside and outside, same types of strategies. They just manifested in different ways, which if I really think about my true understanding of the triad of audiences that I now talk about, it may have actually stemmed from understanding that. And now I need to think about that. Huh? Huh. <laughs> Interesting. New book. I know. Right. Well, it's in the book now, yeah. but oh, okay, uh, okay. In, in short, but not, I'm like, dang, that could really, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Th- thank you for elucidating yeah. something sure. new in my mind today. Mike. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as a, as a, just, I think as a, as a human being and an American, it's, you just can't gra- put, wrap your head around the, that just terrorism on the, from, from the other side, the communication it takes, this just strategies is just so mind blowing that the lengths people go to that is, which is it similar, uh, their strategy similar to marketing campaigns like today or. I mean, absolutely. I think in, I, we're talking post nine 11 mm-hmm. pre ISIS, uh, regime type stuff now. So, yeah. you know, mainly, uh, jihadis as they were called in the media at that point in time, right. Yeah. The most common word. So, when we're looking at that, the technology is available, readily available, but very different at the time than now. So as one of my clients who actually works for Google and uses technology to help combat this stuff now, hmm. um, she says, you know, ISIS is really the first organization that's gained uh, a foothold in both the physical and digital fronts, frontiers. And it's so true. Yeah. So there's a different set of skills that go along with that. But when I was working on this type of stuff and then even got to work with the military a handful of years later for online curriculum and sustainability in war zones, random stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, It's seeing how the most successful organizations, the lessons you can learn from them, you can extrapolate and apply to others. But a, even though a, why your business should run like a terrorist camp would be a very catchy clickbait title. Mm-hmm. I don't want the backlash that right. would come from oh, that. Yeah. And especially yes. even after the white paper was published, the nasty emails, random packages, it, it was it was not just for me, but like for the organization at large, it was odd. It was really interesting. Wow. So interesting. Oh, it's I, that, that would be if it's, so that's in the uh, dynamic communication right now that, that, uh, the terrorism story isn't no, okay, but the okay. idea of the three audiences is. Sure, and sure. now I'm thinking, well, maybe I first got that inclination mm. from that research. Interesting. Gotcha. I probably did. Yeah. Hmm. Huh? Can we get political for a second without being too political? Yeah. Okay. I, I just want your take, communication-wise, on the current uh, presidential administration's communication techniques, tactics, whatever you want to call it. What do you? What do, what do they do right? What do they do wrong? What are their transparency or lack thereof. What are your thoughts? Just, just broad strokes. You know, I really think that I compare it to a bad manager. We'll put it that way to a bad manager where no matter what I say, I'm right. I'm right. Mm -hmm. No matter what I'm saying, I'm right. And whether or not it's the right thing or not, or it's factual or not, or it's accurate or not, it doesn't matter because I'm right. And I think when you get into that mindset and, you know, unfortunately, most of us have had a manager like that before you get into that mindset, you know, if you're, you know, an underling, there is not a thing you can do to combat that. Mm -hmm. There's just not any. I mean, people would say, oh, you could do that. In reality, if someone is a true, you know, is communicating from a narcissistic perspective and truly believes that what they're saying is right, there is nothing that you're going to do to drastically change that, even when you hold the truth in their face. Hmm. So it's, you know, and psychologists would talk about that too. So it's really 
what I see now um, to kind of not really what they're doing wrong or right, because what they're doing is in some ways what every other administration has done and is some ways just so different that to their credit, they're sticking to their agenda. They're sticking to it. They're saying it and they're communicating what they believe in their mind is the truth. Hmm. What is changed in this administration is the prevalence of the media reporting on non-factual information Hmm. or showing clips of non-factual information that people are watching and then not reading further on. And when we're in this era of clickbait and media companies are in it too, right? They need those numbers just as much as any other business. You get those catchy headlines, which is how fake news got so prevalent, Mm -hmm. is that you want the catchy headlines, you need the ego numbers, and the ego numbers drive ad sales. So until companies who are buying ads based on ego numbers smarten up and realize you're not getting a good bang for your buck, you're better off you know, with someone with a lesser audience, but who has followers who actually act – Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just going to perpetuate itself. Right. So it's really, it's really interesting to me. And I, I am thankful. I am not a political consultant this time around. I have a couple of <sighs> friends who are, and I'm, I'm actually just grateful that that is not my area right now. Could you imagine? I, ugh, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, I want to talk about what you think, if there are any communication differences as far as styles or, uh, I don't, I don't even know. I'll, I'll ask my question and there's, or I'll make a statement that my question's in there. Okay. So what are the differences between how millennials are communicating compared to Gen X compared to baby boomers and everybody in between? Is there, are you seeing differences? Yes and no. Uh, difference is more about the channels and mm-hmm. the style of communication, maybe word choice, uh, things that are used. But in terms of fundamental human need, there's really not much change. Mm-hmm. There's just what people are comfortable with and willing to accept. So I see general trends. Uh, when you think about baby boomers, it's like my dad, when he first started texting, every single cent, uh, every single text had Jill, comma, the next <laughs> line, <is> <laughs> full period sentence structure, and yeah. then love, comma, dad yeah. at the end. You know, it was perfect. It was like an email. Uh You know, and his emails were like letters before that. And now, you know, when I unleash the emoji keyboard on his phone, life just changed. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I love you, Dad. So that, you know, people are adapting to that. And people will say, oh, text is ruining all communication. If you let it, it absolutely can. But if it's used to supplement other things, I actually think it can make it better. Uh, Long-distance relationships, people living in different parts of the country, business offerings that need to be uh, done with more expediency. We now have the technology able to facilitate communication in a much more rapid style. So people are attributing that, I think, falsely to generations when it all comes down to it. At any level, in any generation, we all need a sense of belonging. Go back to Maslow, right? We all want to be, you know, have self-esteem. We want to be safe. We want to feel secure and all those things. The big difference in generations, in my perspective, is people's different comfort level with those. In Mm -hmm. older generations, you were comfortable not having as much self-esteem. You were comfortable in the very hierarchical corporate structure, very top down, because that's what you grew up with. As the generations get younger, you know, you look at Y, X, uh, things start to shift a bit, Mm -hmm. right? You start to see a little more pushback. You start to see a little more power. And it comes with access to information too, right? Now we have generations with unlimited and unparalleled access to information. Whether that information is good or not is now the challenge that I think we're all fighting against in so many different ways. But it's now 
what they're willing to tolerate in terms of a boss not respecting them is way less than what other generations would tolerate. So my perspective is it's just a tolerance level. It's not as much of communication differences per se, Mm -hmm. but channels for sure is different and tolerance level. Interesting. Going along with that topic, how we, we get a lot of clients and just in general, we coach that, uh, you need to be assertive to get what you want financially. And that could be uh, asking for a raise. You, you haven't had a raise in a long time or, or just putting yourself out there or, or talking to DirecTV to get a discount or say, you know what, I'm not really happy with my service. I'm trying to cut the cord. And a lot of people are afraid of that type of conversation or that confrontation. Do you have tips on how to be more assertive as a, as a speaker? or I mean, I'm not a speaker, but as just a person yeah. with those type of personal things or professional The one thing I do is I always like to think of what's my worst, worst case scenario. I mean, going back to moving to New York, worst, worst case scenario was I moved back to Arizona where I still have a house, I have family, and I can find a way to teach. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's always a worst, worst case scenario. You're negotiating with DirecTV. Well, what's the worst, worst case scenario that you don't get your way and you cancel DirecTV and you go without cable? Oh my gosh, that's so awful. You know what I mean? You have to be realistic about these things. So once you have that mindset, things change because then you're looking at instead of just, I need to win this, you're looking at, is this actually a good fit for me? Is this right for me? Am I being treated with respect? You know, I don't necessarily think companies should bow down and bend over for people, right? But listen, I've been a customer for three years. My rates keep going up. This isn't a service that I need in my home. I need to know what the best you guys are willing to do for me, you know, whatever. And then they'll come back with a number and you say, okay, well, if that's the best you can do, I'm going to cancel my service. And they say, wait, 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 wait. At that point I say, so you're telling me that you just lied to me. Mm -hmm. Why would I want to do business with someone that I was just lied to, which typically makes them go even (laughs) more low if that's the case, if I decide I want to stay with them again, depending on what it is. But it's, it's just poor. And it's also a, an inclination of companies doing a poor job empowering their employees to make the right decision on the behalf of the customer mm-hmm. in the situation. Right? right. I could go on another tangent of that, but I know I have a meeting and you have stuff to do too. So right. we got to wrap it up. But yeah. it's really know what your worst, worst case scenario is. And it's not even about, to me, in negotiations, knowing your bottom line. No, what's the worst, worst case scenario? And what do you really want out of something? What, any negotiation? What do you enjoy about having? thing X in your life, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to concede? And what are you willing to get? And knowing those things before going into it and not putting it in a frame of winning or losing, but in a frame of, if I, you know, if this conversation is successful, we will both, they will still have a customer and I will still have service and it'll be at a price that we're both comfortable with. Right. Perfect. That's exactly what we say. That's great. And they can at least, they only say, can say no. And then you're at least where you were the 10 minutes before, you know, and you can always say, no, thanks. I'm good. And then you get some money back. So Jill, it's been awesome talking with you. Um, I want to know, uh, give me the name of the book and where they can find it. The book is Dynamic Communication, 27 Strategies to Grow, Manage, and Lead Your Business. It's published by Entrepreneur Press, same as a company as a magazine. And you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it on IndieBound, on iBooks, on Kindle, you know, everywhere, everywhere. books are sold. Awesome. Uh, they may not have it in stock, but they can definitely get it for you through the distributors. And dynamiccommunicationbook.com if you're just curious and want to read a couple chapters as a sneak peek. Great. And and I saw that you are doing a signing here in Phoenix. 
I am. April. Uh, tell me when I forgot. Uh, April 21st. It's a Friday night, 7 p.m. So start your Friday night, you know, at a book talk and a book signing, changing hands on Camelback in Phoenix. Um, should be a fun time. They've given us a big room and it'll be fun to talk about. I'll be talking about not only the book and the premise, but kind of the publishing process for people who yeah. may have self-published in the past, but really are wanting to go down the traditional publishing path or, you know, communication, marketing, everything that goes into the book process. Because I think, uh, for me personally, I know those how to and how did it happen stories are so fascinating. Absolutely. Great. Well, I, I'm going to go. So I will see you there and hope you, hopefully everybody <laughs> else comes uh, or at least checks out your book. Or do you have any other dates coming up anywhere else? Or is the Phoenix uh, one the first one? Yeah, working on some things. I'm in okay. Orlando later this week uh, in Texas in mid-April. Uh, it's all over the board, but okay. it's uh, it's fun. But the Phoenix one, because I know a lot of your audiences in Phoenix, yes. come out and say hi and be like, hey, I listened to you ramble with that guy who used to torture you. How <laughs> <laughs> big of a drink is that guy? I want to know about him. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right, everybody. Well, that is the uh, saver and the spender for this week, and we will see you next week. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Saver and The Spender. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, www.fiscalfitnessaz.com, to your family, friends, and colleagues. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at IamFiscallyFit, and on Facebook at FiscalFitnessPHX. Join us next time for another edition of The Saver and The Spender.